0: Wait a minute, wait a minute. Rolling, take one. Is it going to be all
1: right?
2: Hello, and welcome to Ultra Lens. This is a podcast about film photography, where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Fanya,
3: And I'm Eric. We are back from our long winter's nap with a wonderful show for you. We'll be talking with the amazing Kat Swansea about her new book, and then sharing with you another story of collaboration and love gone wrong with Lee Miller and Man Ray. We've got the answer machine question, a bit of housekeeping, so welcome to hell back to All Through a lens. you have you been? It's been a long time, it feels like.
2: Months? It has. Years, maybe? I've been hibernating, um because I'm a bear. You are. And I need to take lots of naps. It was okay. completely necessary.
3: Is that what you've been doing?
2: <laughs> Basically, Basically, I've been taking napping. taking naps, okay. Yeah, I haven't really been doing much but napping for the most part, okay. I you would did, say. Okay,
3: you did go to Crescent City, which I think we talked about somewhere.
2: Yes, but I also napped there as well. That
3: is true. <laughs> Yeah,
2: I did. People asked me what I wanted for my birthday. And I said to sleep, leave me alone. They're like, it's 730. (laughs) And I'm like, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm 40. Leave me alone. (laughs) It's amazing. Honestly, I've I've had a really great month. It's been, of course, ups and downs. Nothing's perfect. But I'm feeling really good. And I'm really, really excited to get back. I think that Just going back to back on all the episodes, especially in kind of like a tumultuous time in my life, was a little bit difficult. Okay. I am kind of just like recharged. I feel ready to like really give it my all again. I missed everybody so much, and I'm just happy to see your stupid face.
3: (laughs) Um, Thanks, I
2: guess. (laughs) I missed you. Oh, I
3: missed you, Vanya.
2: Oh <laughs>
3: And we act like we don't talk to each other every day. Otherwise, but oh I mean,
2: no. I mean, I have been kind of aloof? off on of my own. A little. Loofah?
3: A- a- aloof. Aloof.
2: Yes. I sure.
3: To me, anyway.
2: Okay. Well, Eric, that's kind of what I've been doing with my break. What have you been doing with all your free time?
3: I put out a couple of zines. Um, I don't think I talked about them. I may have mentioned them, like right before we br- took a took a break before we broke. Yeah, I don't know. But it's two new issues of In This Land, and they are available. and And you know, I've sold many copies. So if you still want copies, I still got copies. But Ooh. I wouldn't wait too too long on that, I guess. Uh, That was kind of the big thing that happened. Uh, Well, while you were napping, I sort of reformatted the entire podcast in a way. (laughs) I I noticed. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully, well, our patrons will know the ins and outs of it because we'll share the gritty behind the scenes details with them. But for everybody else, maybe you won't even notice There'll be some things missing from this episode that will show up in next week's episode. And the next week's episode is not going to be Dev Party, but it's going to be episode 77. And Woo! it'll be a little different than this episode. No guest, for example. Uh, and it'll just be a little bit more of a discussion and and hanging out and not not really like a Dev Party without the dev, but maybe more like that than not. But we will also still have Dev Parties, which brings me to a fairly big thing big one of the big changes we made is that the dev parties what we talk about will now be decided by you the listeners Ooh. at home
1: watch out for snakes or wherever I like you're that. listening
3: yeah i like it too basically it's this if you uh, well we have a lot of you and i vanya we have a lot of experience in developing about 30 30 plus years we figured out somewhere in there
2: mm-hmm.
3: so with those with those 30 plus years we've we've Accrued a lot of, um, I don't know, knowledge in air quotes. We've formed a lot of opinions that may or may not be based on science. So if you have questions about developing or honestly uh, about anything, whether it's the show, whether it's something we talked about on another dev party or something we talked about on like one of the main episodes where, like, well, what the hell is going on with this? Write us, ask us. You know, you can message us on uh, at the podcast on Instagram, or just email us at authorlens.podcast at gmail.
2: This is very, very exciting. Also, I know it's fairly common for people to like write in and things like that, but I kind of like how we're structuring it. It's a little bit more kind of question answer type of, you know, advice or opinion, blah, whatever, whatever you guys it's. I can't wait to see where it goes. I'm really excited to hear from everybody and uh, just kind of see where people are right now in their photography journey.
3: I guess we should get into the episode, right? Each episode, we put on our house slippers, our cozy cardigans and checker answering machine. We ask our listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird-ass question we come up with. Um, Vanya, what is the weird-ass question that we are asking this time around?
2: So the question that we asked was, what does the phrase improving your photography mean to you? Now, we've
3: got we got more answers uh, to this than any other question we've ever posed before.
2: Oh, really? Yeah. Like, like record? Yeah. Kind of weird that we haven't asked this question.
3: Yet. <laughs> I, I I thought we did, and I looked back through all of our all of our episodes. Like, no, we've never asked this. But I think the key here was improving your photography because we're always talking about like, oh, I'm going to improve my photography. What does that even mean? So we've we've uh, I've selected honestly at random. I think it's seven of okay. the twenty or so, and we will be playing some of the rest on the next episode. Sounds good here we go
2: let me push the button
1: go ahead push the button this is the story of star wars you can read along with me in your book you will know it is time to turn the page when you hear r2d2 beep like this let's begin now hey vanya and eric this is mina from sydney my handle is at crook and flail on instagram really looking forward to hearing you guys again in 2023 To answer this week's question, I'd have to say that a term I came across Early on when I picked up this hobby was pre-visualization and at first I didn't believe in it I thought it was a really wanky term, but as time has gone on. It's still it's really started to resonate with me Um, To achieve a photograph that comes back from the lab exactly the same as or really close to how you thought it would come out is I think, a really strong measure of improving your photography.
3: That's one of the things we talk about kind of a lot. Have I ever told you how much I hate the phrase mind's eye?
2: Um, no, but I kind of agree. I so really, it's okay. I don't know
3: why I hate it. And it's, this my problem. So if anybody out there is using it, don't let me stop. Why would you let me stop you to begin with? That's just dumb. But I, I hate it a lot.
2: I'm like, now I'm going to use it all the time. Yeah, you
3: will. <laughs> but I like that he, he can... You the the measure of improving your photography is okay. Here's what I want, and getting it, and that's kind of the goal.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a Ansel Adams thing. I think visual. I think it was like visu, visualizing.
3: Oh, you can't I say can't visualizing. Say
2: visual. Oh my God. Okay, you say it for me. Is the here? I'm gonna leave this open.
3: Visualizing
2: is the single most important factor in photography. According he, to Ansel Adams.
3: Ansel Adams said pre-visualization is.
2: No, visu- oh. <laughs> like I said.
3: Visualizing.
2: Well, what is. Not pre-, pre.
3: Pre-visualization is visualizing before you visualize?
2: I guess so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, so I actually really like this word and I, I guess never really paid too much attention to it. Which until- word? Shut up. <laughs> Mina said it. (laughs) Leave me alone. I hate you. Visualizing. But I do do this. This is very, very important. It's a little bit different for me, I would say, but I definitely, I'm a daydreamer, so I daydream up all my ideas, all the things I want to shoot, I have thought about. When I went to Liz's house in Texas, I got to see, I didn't read her journal, of course, because I'm not an asshole, but (laughs) she showed me where she puts all her ideas, like basically the magic book where all of the things go in. And I think it's so amazing, incredible.
3: So Liz, uh, when Vanya visited you, she really enjoyed herself and absolutely did not read your journals.
2: I didn't. Do not worry
3: about her reading your journals because (laughs) she did not do that. Cool. Let's go on to the next.
1: I think typically improving your photography would mean mastering the technical aspects and getting consistent results
0: that you expect. But if you're at a comfortable point or you don't care about
1: the technique so much, then I think improving means finding your style and becoming a better storyteller, making photos that more people feel um, maybe what you're feeling.
3: We did a whole thing on storytelling, didn't we? At
2: Mm -hmm. one point? Mm -hmm.
3: Sometime in the last three years.
2: We could probably do like five more episodes about storytelling, honestly.
3: I don't know what else I would say about it.
2: I think that everybody has a specific way of telling a story and the way that I really enjoy the way that you take me to places. Sure. I think you're telling a story in your own way, in your own vision, your own way, and your experience. And it's different from most people's. And that's interesting.
3: How would you become a better storyteller? Me? Uh, yes.
2: Um, I guess I would try to ask people what they see in my work more instead of just putting it out there, maybe getting, being a little bit more open to critique or maybe joining a group where we all kind of and and not like in a like stuffy way but literally just like we choose a picture once every two weeks and we talk about each other's pictures and we kind of explain what we feel about it and just to kind of see if they're seeing what i'm trying to i guess evoke okay yeah that makes sense Honestly, I I do really like hearing how other people see things because mm-hmm. it is so much different than me. Oh, it, it doesn't is, yeah. necessarily mean that I'm going to change anything, but I do. I am interested yeah. because I think it is important to have an understanding of what people see when when they look at your photographs. I would, you know, and <laughs> I'm really bad at this too. Like if I go to a profile and it's just a bunch of Half naked chicks. I'm probably going to judge that person right away and be like, "Okay, well, that person's busy," but that's not necessarily fair.
3: No, I think it's at at this point. If you're a guy and uh, (laughs) your profile is just half naked chicks, it's okay to judge them (laughs) at this point in our history. Fucking move on and do something else with your life.
2: Well, I think it's important for me to like if they get gave a shit what. If they asked me my opinion, I would tell them. I think it's important. But if they don't give a shit, then I don't care either. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. Hi, Eric and Vanya. Thank you for all
3: the
1: wonderful work you've been doing on this podcast. I see two general major paths in practicing the photographic arts today. One is to move forward... um, into the future, um, toward narrative photography with the use
3: of AI tools and digital crafting, and another is getting back to very old school crafting—film, wet plate, cyanotype, etc. And I find myself gravitating toward the latter personally. I really want to relearn and get better at the fundamental crafting skills, such as. Developing and printing, and hopefully come up with a narrative theme that is close to my heart and
4: create work using analog craft. Thank you.
2: Oh, no, I'm just so amped on this answer. It's just perfect, honestly. <laughs> it's exactly how I feel. I think it's really great that people can use AI. I, I see like people making themselves turn into like space age people, whatever. I think it's great. Um, if that's what you're into, I will 100% support you. I think it's great. It's not for me because I think that I am, I'm grasping at the act. Of using my hands and using my body to create. Sure. I'm a blue collar labor lady and I <laughs> like to work hard. I like to make mistakes. I like to make messes. I mean, if you look, dude, I still have like marks from, you know, not properly handling chemicals possibly. So yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm right there with her. It is kind of like, Fundamentals in in a way, and I, I'm just not ready to move on yet. And I think I'm very comfortable where I'm at right now.
3: Yeah, I don't think we need to move on. I mean, I'm I'm glad you know AI is doing some really cool things, and it, I don't really give a shit about it in the art world. But you know, AI in general, I think is doing some really wonderful things. But I think the further the divide between modern photography, I guess, and Older photography, the further that divide is, I think the more I think the more we will be appreciated. But may but we have to watch out because it could be in the same way that when you go to like a Renaissance fair, you really appreciate the blacksmith. Huzzah! And I think there's a bit of that too. And I love the blacksmith, don't get me wrong. Like the smell of of you know, his his smith, I guess.
2: Is it smelt? <laughs> it was,
3: it's not smelting there. No, he's smithing. So, oh, okay. It, oh yeah it's yeah method. or i i don't know i i think well, i just blew your mind
2: i did you did sorry but I, I like
3: that we can kind of take refuge in that but also also there's been a lot of like more modern developments in film photography including like developer like the 501 pyro is a new developer there's several other new developers there's some new fixers that are being worked on.
2: It's basically like how I feel about my like in life in general, everything like I don't really necessarily feel like school is the way to learn specific things. Um, I think about the guy who made my water housing and how he's been working with analog cameras for the past 30 years. And he doesn't plan on stopping, but when he does, who's gonna take his place? And yeah, of course, like a computer can like generate some bullshit. But I just feel like we are letting computers kind of take over our creativity. And I don't really necessarily like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it could be very beneficial and helpful for certain things for sure. But I do think that we are creative enough without them.
3: Well, like when we were making magazines before, not zines, because I would just cut and paste, but like actual magazines before. You'd have to get things like like the whole page photo ready, and you'd yes. be using, you know, film to do that. And thank fucking God we don't have to do that anymore. You know, computers are incredibly helpful with, with those things. And, and if we lose those things, fine. I mean, there's certain things about the way we used to do stuff. It's okay to lose because nobody is going to produce a magazine like they did in the 1980s. We don't have the infrastructure for it even.
2: Yeah, but like I was looking, of course, cause I'm a psychopath, I was looking for a emblem like with a V or a Z or something like that to like stamp my mail. Cause sure. I wanna like do a little wax, little stamp, you know? Like it's like, ooh, this is from the king <laughs> or the queen. I guess I would be the queen in this, I don't know. Maybe court jester, but. I love that. And letterpress, all those things. It's like the texture of the paper mm-hmm. and the, the handmade, like quality of it. I enjoy that very much. Yeah. I think spending the time to handwrite a letter to somebody or even just, you know, something really small like that is, is so much more thoughtful than pressing like control P and printing out something. Yeah, I agree. It is.
3: Well, let's go to the next.
1: Hey, Eric and Vanya, this is Tim at Tim Darklighter. Uh, To improve photography, I tend to look at other things like hand drawing, which I've done since I was a young kid. Um, There's a couple good books like uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain by Betty Edwards that force you to learn how to draw at higher than, in her case, like a five-year-old level of actually learning how to use perspective and tones and um you know learning learning how to frame an, an image and that sounds a lot like using a camera in the zone system so if I'm really stuck and trying to improve I go do some draw drawings watercolor ink pencils anything it also kind of gets me out of ruts take care
3: That goes to what you were just saying. Drawing is something that we've done as humans since we've probably since before we were humans, to be honest. You know? Yeah.
2: Oh my gosh, have you seen the new Netflix show?
3: Well, you have some drawing skills.
2: (laughs) Uh slightly. Sometimes it's better than others. Uh lately actually I've been um babysitting, (laughs) which is very interesting. Also, Maybe they're babysitting me. I'm not exactly sure yet if who's the actual babysitter. But one of my favorite things to do when I'm like babysitting my my niece or my friends' kids is to watercolor, to paint, or craft. Like I had an egg carton, and I was like, "Let's not recycle or throw this away. We're gonna like make something out of it." So we ended up making like we we cut it up, turned it into flowers and uh-huh. whatever. Nice. So, yeah. And then we actually strung it. So it's like this little dangly thing. I don't okay. know, whatever. The whole point is that like, that relaxes me, that calms me down. And it really gets me kind of back into the flow of uh where I want my, my thought process to be because I hate real life. <laughs> so um any, anything to like get me there. Is kind of so music, drawing, painting, um, walking barefoot, uh, naked in the forest. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. Okay. How about you?
3: I don't draw. I'm I have like the drawing skills of a drunk fourth grader.
2: Oh, I love it though. Those are my favorite drawings. Okay. A kid's drawings, like how they're just kind of like a circle face, and then they start to like grow stick arms and then stick legs and then they actually start to like put fingers and like it just slowly transitions to like more of like a person and it's just so magical i love that so much it's so much fun so like when i see where people stop they're like they get nervous and they're like okay this is as much as i could draw (laughs) like i want to see where you stopped
3: (laughs) well i stopped right between the stick arms and fingers like there's no fingers yet
2: yeah. So I started to draw like horses and animals pooping. That was kind of like the end of like <laughs> of where I stopped. I don't know why I was like obsessed with it, but I think cause it was bad and naughty, but I wanted to draw animals with like poop coming out of their butts.
3: Okay. So the next one.
1: Hey, Sean Bascom, B-A-A-A-S-C-O-M or Bascom on Instagram. Um, Improving my photography, to me, I think means just getting better at thinking of everything when I'm making a picture Um, and when I'm out shooting, especially like street or documentary, being able to wrangle all of the elements together the way I want to quicker and quicker. There's pictures I made a decade ago that I love to death still. And don't know if I'd be able to recreate them tomorrow.
0: Do
2: you ever think about why you love that picture? Like, what was it? Was it because of the mindfulness or like what you were thinking of that moment? Like, I always try to when I look back at like really old photos, especially like stuff that I did in high school that I just I'm like, how the fuck did I make this amazing? (laughs) And how come I can't do this again? I try to remember like where I was in my head and, and why, what I was thinking. I do really like that. And I think, again, with like the pre visual. Oh my God, I can't say the word. I'm so sorry, you guys. Okay, so that word. <laughs> Watch out for snakes. Just journaling, writing, like, writing down your day, like how you do, how you tell your story. I think that's all really important.
3: Yeah, a lot of the reasons why we like our own photos is because we know the stories behind them. Well, let's go on to another.
1: So honestly, I kind of feel like I can't really meter worth shit and I'd like to get better at it because I feel like half of my shots that really don't come out are just because something is either way too overexposed or underexposed. Um, and I guess the other side of that is sometimes I wonder if I'm actually good at scanning or if I just get lucky sometimes. Um, especially since I scan using a digital camera, there's a lot of decisions in terms of just how much you, how heavily you expose the shot that you take during the scanning process. And I think I could probably get better at that sometimes too.
3: I don't do the digital camera thing. I don't have a, like a digital camera. So I just use a, the you know the regular scanner. And mm-hmm. I don't know i i really like I really like it i don't I don't look at my negatives too much right after I pull them out, even the dev party ones. I look at them to check that see like okay, I, I see what, where I was when I took this, but I don't really analyze them because you, I don't feel you really can or at least I can't I can't do it
2: mm-hmm.
3: so i i do i'm I really enjoy like here's here's me looking at the photos for the first time, and so scanning for me is is like a little bit of a revelation I, I like that um but yeah, I would suggest. Metering? Why not? No. There we go. We have a whole episode there. Metering. Why not?
2: I know. Because I feel like it's really important to look at a scene and at least be able to give yourself like two or three different metering situations. And I think this like helped a lot with me when I was in the water, like shooting the Nikonos 3. There's no light meter. And yeah, I could put like one underneath it, but... I just don't have that kind of time. So I had to improvise a lot and I've made a lot of mistakes, but I've also made some really good mistakes. And a lot of the way that I shoot now and how I shoot now is because of those shots in the water. Maybe even just dedicate like half of your role, if you're shooting 35 to a camera that doesn't have a light meter. And if you feel super uncomfortable, then just, you know, get the light meter app and kind of get an idea there. But But play around with that and and see if you could at least like pop quiz yourself like, okay, like if I'm going to shoot this, I probably would shoot it at whatever, you know, whatever you're you're thinking at the time. So like, do you want a shallow depth of field? Do you want just one thing in focus? Do you want everything in focus? How would you adjust the speed to that? And then meter it and kind of see if you were close. Just kind of test yourself a little bit. Get yourself a little bit more comfortable with it. And try not to rely too much on the meter. And I think that eventually you'll be stoked.
3: Yeah, I think one of the things that really helped me out a lot was the Pentax spot meter. Yeah, and that was a
2: good meter. It's a great meter.
3: I have, It's one that I'll, I'll always use. You know, it's, I think the perfect meter for me. And it's great for landscapes. If you're like a portrait photographer, then you, you really don't need it. But if you're a landscape photographer, I, I it's helped me so much and it's helped me really understand light and how bright stuff is. I, I would recommend it.
2: Even if I'm not photographing and I notice myself liking light or interested in light, I meter it with my phone. I just wanna see kind of like, okay, what like- Yeah, that's not a bad in idea. In my brain, if I, was, if I was to shoot, because a lot of the times, if I don't have my camera, I'm probably going to go back to that place with a camera if I feel like there was something to shoot because that's just the way that like I want to live my life. Yeah. It's always about the shot that I should have gotten. <laughs> so What, what a uh, light! I will look at Yeah, I will look at stuff or yeah, I'll look at light and be like, "Oh god, this light is good." So then it's like a time to kind of practice that even though you don't have a camera, just guess what it is and and sh- see see if you're correct. See if your settings would be Similar to what you would need
3: Okay, and here is our last one for today
0: Hey, All Through Lens Podcast My name is Logan at 120Logan on Instagram And to me, improving my photography means that Sometimes I just need to take a break Because we all get burnt out from time to time I recently started a new job Most of my time has been going towards that And I haven't been able to shoot as much as I'd like And that's okay I was also working on a zine that I had to put on hold. Since I haven't been shooting as much as I would like, I've been looking at a lot of work and studying it and taking notes why I like it or don't like it and what makes a good image. To me, taking a break and shooting and studying what about photography it is that I like helps me see common themes and goals that I want to achieve in my work. I think that this pairs well with saving photos for a project so that I can see the idea expand and hopefully get better with time, other than just throwing everything on Instagram and forgetting about it.
3: Yeah, just just throwing things up on Instagram is so, I guess what we normally do, right? That's everything, that's pretty much everything that comes out of the camera that you want to share goes there or on social Mm, media somewhere. For
2: the most part, I, I usually save the really, really, really good ones for myself because I don't like I, I I might want to use them for something so
3: I've you know I've, I've changed with that a little bit where mm-hmm. I will I will put some stuff up on Instagram that I'm going to put in a zine or a book or something and I'm o- more okay with that now though I do like all of the things that I put out to have stuff that nobody's ever seen before I I, mm-hmm. I really like that so there is a lot of that still there with me
2: well so I'm kind of going through a dilemma of don't know exactly how many times I've posted, but it's probably been over like a thousand or so over the past like five years. And there's photos that are like stunningly beautiful that I have like four likes on probably at the very bottom because who the hell goes down there? Uh, so I am starting to kind of revisit stuff a little bit. Um, I posted last week a photo I took of a wave and it was the first time I shot the... Uh, Kodak Ektachrome in the Nikonos. And oh, yeah, it yeah. was just a role that I wasn't really like, I wasn't really that excited about as far as the day. And it ended up being one of my favorite roles ever. So um, maybe someone hasn't seen it. And I, I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to start to kind of pick and choose some, some images that I really care about to repost mm-hmm. and kind of hold on to. The stuff because I'm working on a like really big project right now, so I won't be like having a lot of stuff to post for the next at least month. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's important to take a step back when you feel like you need to rest, and that's kind of like I mean when he was talking, I was like, yeah, that was January for me. Yeah,
3: I took this winter off, and I, I I'm still taking it off. I'm not done yet. I'm
2: not done resting. Me either.
3: So, but soon.
2: I'm literally napping right now. It is true. It she is.
3: <laughs> so thanks everybody for calling in. Uh, like I said before, those who haven't heard their own voices will probably get a chance to next episode. We may have to pick and choose due to time restraints, but we'll see. So give a listen to our episode next week to hear our own take on the question. We will be going on about that, I'm sure. But until then, Vanya, what is the next question we'll be asking?
2: What do you think could change or alter your style?
3: Yeah, outside influences. What are they? Mm. Yes. so give a call to our answering machine and leave us a message. And of course, by give a call to our answering machine, we mean go to Instagram and leave us a voice message. And if we like you very, very, very much, we will play it on the next episode. And the deadline for that is Tuesday, February 28th.
2: We first talked to Kat Swansea all the way back in episode 18.
3: We fell in love with her straightforward depictions of small town Texas.
2: But now she's back with a book called Texas Textures. And we are excited as hell to hear what she has to say.
4: Oh, hello. Hello. Hey. Hi, guys. How's it going?
3: It's, it's going great. How are you?
4: I am good. Oh, my God. I'm screaming internally and externally right now, except I have a neighbor who will text me if I'm too loud. So, you know. No way. Are you serious? It's a delight. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's very, like,
2: very sweet way of saying it.
4: It's a very, like, Texan thing to do. Like, if a Texan ever says, oh, bless your heart, it's like... <laughs> it's petty. It like we're like the queen we're the kings and queens of being like ultra petty mm-hmm. while making it sound like we really are like caring for you. <laughs>
2: like, I am for that. I love it. I think it's fantastic.
4: It is until it happens to you. Like I had somebody say bless your heart to me the other week and I was like, "No, no. No, 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 <laughs> oh, no." Wow. You're not blessing my heart. Okay? <laughs>
3: I love, bless your heart, because it's just, it's so condescending.
4: (laughs) It is so condescending.
3: Well, Kat, welcome. Welcome back to All Through a Lens. Thank you.
4: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, heck
3: yeah. You have a new book out, Kat. It is called Texas Textures. So (laughs) what is it? Talk about it, and and how did it come about?
4: Texas Textures came about, actually, because um, when I first started getting into photography, I was hanging out here in Austin. I didn't live here yet because I was like 13 or 14. And I found this book by Dennis Stock. And I kind of became obsessed with it. And I just remember like sitting on the floor in half price books thinking how cool it would be to have my own photo book someday. And I I finally just made it. Really, it came about because of the pandemic because I found myself with a ton of free time and I had no more excuses to not do it also just because I felt like I needed to do something beyond just sharing my photos on Instagram and Twitter. (laughs) And I had a lot of success through the pandemic selling prints. And so I kind of realized that the desire to have like physical copies of photography is there. And so, um, yeah, that combined with the fact that, you know, I had just been something I really wanted to do for a while, just kind of brought it to life. I've been kind of, I don't want to say criticized, but I've been given feedback quite a bit that like I undervalue my work and a lot of that is like by design. Like I like for my photography to be attainable to people. Yes. And so um, it was important for me to make sure that I was going through a printer that was going to be affordable so that I didn't have to like pass on a lot of the costs to people who are buying my book. And I also knew that I wanted it to be, like, if I was going to take the time to put out a book, it needed to be exactly what I had always wanted it to be, which was a hardcover and, like, 100 photos. Yeah. I actually ended up with, like, 220 photos, <laughs> What's? but—
3: <laughs> It's a substantial book.
4: Yeah, it's 145 you know? pages. Yeah. Kind of nuts. My book, Texas Textures, is 220 images of Texas— as well as, I think, 19 stories that I also wrote about various towns in Texas, which was something that was very different and challenging for me to do. I knew that, you know, releasing the book, I wanted it to be, like, all-encompassing of Texas, because I think that people don't necessarily understand, number one, how big Texas is, and number two, geographically, like, how different it is. And so, it's interesting because even though geographically Texas is so diverse, like we have swamps, we have forests, we have the desert, we have a, a coast, um, and we've got everything in between that like the common theme is that just all across the state due to drought or natural disasters or like railroads being diverted, highways being diverted, that like so many towns have... Just like fallen into disrepair so many of my photos all look the same because it's all abandoned buildings like if you kind of look beyond that sometimes you can see just how different it is and so that was kind of why i decided to break up the book geographically
3: but let's, let's start with the title
4: yeah
3: uh we talked a bit about guy clark the last time you were here because how can you not? We even did a, another segment, another episode about Guy Clark. You get it from a line from his, the song Rita Blue," which we will be yeah. playing at some point in the episode. <laughs> what? what how, why? Why that? Why that?
4: Well, number one, Guy Clark is a Texan. Um, I mean, obviously, he spent half of his life in Tennessee, but the Texas element was very prevalent in all of his songwriting. He talks about it extensively. But also, he's just one of my favorite musicians. And he is, like, constantly being played on my road trips. Mm-hmm. Like, Guy Clark is a staple of my road trips. And so one of my favorite lines to sing whenever Rita Beluga comes on <laughs> is the line about the walk and talk in Texas texture. Yeah. She's a raw,
3: rope and velvet mixture. Walk and talk in Texas texture. Hot time and borrowed.
4: But also I was like, that's just such a perfect name for this book. Mm -hmm. And so um, please, if anybody who is related to Guy Clark is listening to this, please do not sue me. I promise (laughs) it was done with love. (laughs) (laughs) And I I give him credit on the first page of the book.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The book, it's arranged by town. Uh, Is there any particular order to this?
4: So it's arranged um, geographically. So northeast, southwest, and then central is the last piece of it. Really, there was no like true rhyme or reason behind how the towns were placed within it. I start off with Archer City, Texas, because that's where Larry McMurtry was from. And he wrote The Last Picture Show. It's based off of his life and growing up in Archer City, even though that's not the name of the town in the book or the movie. Larry McMurtry, like Guy Clark, has just been very influential on me throughout my childhood and my adult life. And so I guess in some small way, like the book really honors like maybe four different people that were very influential for me. So Larry McMurtry, Guy Clark, and then both of my grandfathers, which I also talk about on the first page. And then from there, it was really just moving things around based off of how I liked it visually. (laughs) (laughs)
3: How did you pick the towns when you were out shooting?
4: I didn't really go out and take any of these photos with the idea of like putting them into a book. These are all places I was going to visit anyway. Where things got kind of interesting was having to think back like how far I wanted to go back into like the archives because I've been really focusing specifically on like rural and abandoned Texas for the last 10 years, but I've been photographing Texas since I was like 12 or 13 and I'm about to turn 33. So like almost 20 years. Yeah, one thing that I kind of had to keep in mind was not going so far back into the archives that like some of these places might not exist anymore. I get asked like all the time to um share locations or like for recommendations for people that are visiting or just like want to get out and like find some places to look at. I know with the book that people who would be interested in buying it would also be people who are probably going to try to make their own road trip out of places that are in there. So I didn't want to send people on like a wild goose chase <laughs> to places that don't exist anymore.
3: What you're doing is it's a little uh, a little controversial with a lot of photographers where sometimes they will be real dicks about not giving locations and some people just don't yeah. give locations, but some people are real assholes about it. Yeah. And and you're <laughs> yeah. kind of doing the opposite. You're very openly going like, yeah. look, look at these places, go to these places.
4: There are some places that I can gatekeep. Okay. <laughs> so sure, like sure. For, for the most part, I'm pretty open about it just because the way I see it is it's very popular and it it's become more popular over the last like probably 5 or so years but like if you go onto Facebook and you google like uh backroads of Texas or like abandoned Texas there's like tons and tons of Facebook groups where people are sharing these places anyway. Yeah. So if they're not finding it for me, they're going to find it from somebody else. I'm actually really interested to see
2: how things go the next 5 years and people traveling through Texas if people like want to travel because of your book which is kind of amazing honestly like little inspiration like what you were saying when you were in the in the library looking at a book and you were inspired by this photo book and maybe there's going to be someone in the next generation doing it with yours oh my god
4: <laughs> I might actually cry right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just like taught to me from an early age because I, I grew up with my grandparents and, you know, my grandfather, I'm not kidding, can tell you like 10,000 back roads to get somewhere <laughs> that's across the state so that you never have to get on a highway, you know? That's so amazing. like we've always I've always just grown up taking the back roads and just like having an understanding of like where these places might exist really there's a lot of interest from women. Um, A lot of the people that ask me about these places are women who I think are very interested in getting out and doing this type of exploring, but feel like it's not safe or they're like scared to go out and try it. And so I tried to kind of weave those elements into the book as well. I kind of touch on it quite a bit when I'm talking about Marathon, Texas, which for those who are unfamiliar, it's not Marathon, Texas. It is Marathon.
3: (laughs) Marathon. So
4: I I talk about that in the book, but I... I had some, you know, pretty interesting experiences whenever I was traveling there. And it is like my little desert refuge. It's my home away from home. But I've never really felt like I've been in any real danger. I mean, there have been a couple in 10 years of doing this mostly by myself. I've only had like a handful of experiences where I was like, OK, this is sketchy. You know, like I just I always trust my gut. And I feel like people hear me say that. And they're like, OK, well, that's not like, for instance, my brother, he he loves guns. You know, he, we're in Texas. Like he <laughs> loves his weapon. And you know, to give him some credit, because I'm sure some people are gonna scoff at that, he is a responsible gun owner. But he's always like, You need, you need a weapon, you need this, you need that. And trusting your gut's not gonna get you very far. But I think it's also important to remember that people don't live in these a lot of these places anymore because there's nothing out there. There's no jobs. There aren't, there's just nothing in a lot of these places. Like people have kind of moved out in a way. So I mean it, you're gonna go somewhere and you're not really gonna encounter very many humans for the most part. And when at least in my experience, when I have encountered humans, I'm either being asked, like, are you okay? I saw your cars pulled over. Like, are you are you safe? Are you well? Can I help you with anything? Or they wanna know how the hell I found whatever yeah. it is, because it's <laughs> like not a place that people travel to. <laughs> yeah. I,
2: I think there are a lot of great benefits uh on being a woman traveling alone because it's usually, and I'm not saying all the time, because I've experienced it too. But for the most part, they're very curious, like, what the hell are you doing here kind of thing. And it's not as confrontational as I would assume it would be if I was a male. Sometimes I've had people like, you know, get really upset because I was like photographing something that was on their property or whatever from the street, but still like they get, you know, so there is a little bit of that. And, and that can be throw some people off, but it's so rare that it happens. And also I feel like it's kind of my duty as like now that I'm an older photographer to try to keep the peace with those people and understand, oh yeah, like
4: this is a really old camera. I'm a photographer. I really enjoy this stuff. One thing I will say that has kind of helped whenever I've had people who have been upset with me for like and. This is kind of a, a two part thing, but like number one, I get kind of made fun of sometimes because I don't go into these places. But part of the reason I don't go in is because I'm a woman and I am traveling alone. So, number one, like I have fallen through the floor of places before. Yeah. Not fun. And some of these places don't have cell phone signals. So, if something happens to me, I am SOL. I'm out there on my own waiting for somebody to just drive past and hopefully they stop. But number two, um, i I like just photographing things from the road or from the street. um I mean, sometimes I will get a little bit closer, but when I have had people who have stopped and um like caught me coming out of their building or whatever, I generally have had pretty good luck giving them a business card i ha- I had got like a hundred business cards made for twenty bucks, and I swear it was like one of the best like the best investments into my photography that I've ever made because. When you hand them a business card, suddenly they're like, oh, this person isn't here to vandalize or steal. Like it just makes it, you know, I I think it kind of they can kind of piece it together. Like, oh, this is somebody who's like a professional. And not that I would call myself that, but it puts them at ease a bit. Yeah, absolutely. There was another time there's this old church in this town called Santa Ana, Texas, and um, it's a pretty popular like photographer spot like a lot of people go photograph this old abandoned church there's this woman who lives next door to it and i had like seen stories and like some of the facebook groups about people who had like mm-hmm. interacted with her and i don't know if she just felt more comfortable talking to me because i'm a woman but she told me all about trying to run over her boss when she was working for the city of santa Ana, <laughs> and i was just like are you confessing a crime to me right now? Because I yeah. am not going to rat you out, but also I don't want to know anything about this. I want to get the fuck out of here and get to my... I don't Absolutely. want to be privy to any of your crimes, you know? Like, leave me out of it. I am not an accomplice. I am just a stranger with the camera. And then she switched up the conversation and telling. she was like, she's from Kentucky. And so then we started talking about Loretta Lynn, you know? <laughs> Bless her heart.
3: Nice. <laughs> most of the book are, you know, are pictures of abandoned buildings and abandoned towns and all that. But the yeah. cover the cover is not. The cover is yeah. a shot looking out the the windshield on a on a road with some mountains in the background. No no buildings at all actually. Why? I mean, cover this cover isn't really representative of the photos in the book. So why this photo for the cover?
4: I wanted the cover to be like a visual representation of what it's like from my perspective, like driving down the highway to find these spots. So it's almost like you open it up and then there's all the secrets inside.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, the book isn't just photographs. Like you've mentioned, there is a little bit of writing as well. Um, what do you feel your writing conveys uh, that your photographs that don't?
4: I didn't want the book to just look like something that you could find on Instagram or by going to my website. I wanted to offer something different that I don't normally do. And so kind of sharing those tales and little snippets of things that I experienced whenever I was visiting those places. And some of these towns I've been to like 20 times. So there was a little bit more to say about them than some other spots. Yeah, I wanted to to kind of like give that background and that context to maybe kind of like bring these places to life a little bit more, but I also wanted to like push myself out of my comfort zone. I think what would make it a little bit more interesting was talking about my own experience at these places and then kind of incorporating some of the history in there, but not letting the history be the main subject, I guess. The
2: book seems to be quintessentially Cat Swansea's Texas, which I absolutely adore. I love the way that you show places. It's very respectful. It's beautiful. It's doesn't seem manipulated. It's just real. And I, I enjoy that. But I want to know if you've gotten any feedback from other Texans because... You know, as an outsider looking, I'm like, oh, this is gorgeous. What do people that have lived there for generations have have they seen the book? Have you gotten any feedback from them?
4: The only older person to give me feedback on my book was my grandfather this past weekend, actually. Oh. Um I I do know um when I was mailing all of the books out, I did see some Grandpa so and so paw Paul so and so so there were people buying the books and sending them to their grandparents for sure oh
0: wow um
4: I know it was really cute there were a couple times I was like should I like write paw Paul a note like should I write a little grandpa a note but the answer like, is yes <laughs> I, I should have. I should have. But Just I did Say thanks, I didn't. Papa. <laughs> yeah, thanks. This one's for you, <laughs> Um, I'm gonna drink a pearl beer after this. A yeah. Lone Star after this for you, Papa. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I talk in my book about both of my grandfathers, but um, for anybody who follows me on social media, they're all probably familiar with my Papa.
3: With the red truck,
4: because he. <laughs> Yes, yeah. with the red truck, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I promise he has a name. His name is Valjean, but I call him Paw Paw.
3: His, his name is what?
4: Valjean. Um, wow. He was born on Valentine's Day and he was named after Gene Autry. So his, I don't know how his name came about, but Valjean, Valentine's and Gene Autry. Oh my gosh. I'm,
3: I'm Wow, I'm that is cool. That's a,
4: yeah, that's like beyond cool. <laughs> I know it's a pretty sick name, right? It is. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I talk pretty extensively about growing up with my grandfather and us. I probably won't elaborate on it too much because I get emotional when I talk about it. And when I think about writing that spot in the book, because I think I cried like 30 times when I was writing it, it's like two paragraphs, but I was very emotional (laughs) when I was putting Uh it all together. But I talk about like growing up and riding around in his classic cars and him pointing out all of these different places. And then now doing that as an adult with him in his little red truck, he's a big classic car guy. He I don't think he like really understood that a lot of the reason why I visit these places and why I'm so drawn to them is because of him. And so for him, I think reading that first page of the book, which he did not comment on, he's not the kind of person to comment on it. You know, when I walked into my grandparents' house last weekend, I saw the book sitting next to his recliner. So I knew he had been like digging through it. And then, you know, I sat down and he picked it up and he was like, you know, I've been studying your book and... He was kind of downplaying it. He was like, I've only... I'm, I haven't gotten very far yet. I'm only on the section about West Texas. And I'm like, "Papa, that's like almost all the way through the book. Like you have <laughs> almost made it through the whole thing. You know, he like made a comment to me about how he liked the way that it was laid out. He liked the photos. He liked the stories. And so that was kind of like a sweet, like tender moment. And then, you know, afterwards, my grandma pulled me aside and was like, your Papa is so proud of you. Like he loves the book. And then I had to go... like. hide in the back room for a second and like let out some tears (laughs) so really like he inspired a lot of the book and so hearing that feedback from him was really like a full circle moment for me and i hope all the other pawpaws that got my book also loved it nice yeah
3: so how can people get your book
4: well um if you go to my website it is completely sold out but just for the podcast i put together a web page geocities webpage just kidding <laughs> um angel fire maybe <laughs> um, if you go to my website and you click on the where to buy tab it'll pull up a list of retailers or like general stores that have it or you can just go to catswancy.com book right now it is only available in just various stores across texas and a lot of these places don't have websites so it's one of those things that you're gonna have to dm them on instagram or maybe you know send them an email and ask them to ship it but they will Okay. Um, there was one. There was one store that had the book listed on their website um, back in my hometown, and they've completely sold out of the books already. They sold out of them very quickly. That's great. Um, which is an excellent problem to have. It brought me a lot of joy to know mm-hmm. that a store in my hometown sold my book and sold out of it with, like, in yeah, week. That's so
2: amazing. That's that really really, really
3: cool. It's wonderful. Yeah. We'll have people hit up those stores. <laughs>
4: Yeah, to get I'll send book. you guys the link.
3: Yeah, yeah, send us the link.
4: But if all else fails, send me a DM and I will connect people to a shop owner somewhere that has a copy of the book. I, w- I just don't think I was like fully prepared for the number of people who wanted to get a copy of the book, which is incredible. And like, I am blown away.
3: You, you deserve it, though. It's a good book.
4: Yeah, absolutely. It is. A good yeah. book. Thank you. Yeah, you absolutely you. deserve it. Well, gosh, oh. you guys are just so nice to me. Wants, I mean, I'm not you. trying to be nice. I mean, just, <laughs> I'm just
3: being truthful. It's it's a really good book. I'm glad, I'm glad you did it.
2: Kat, it was so lovely. I definitely don't think that um, one small interview is going to be enough. I hope that maybe we can get you back on and just, you know, get an update and see how things are going. Or just have you on for, like, maybe a little special guest, you know. Mm-hmm trio all through a lens thing
4: you know maybe maybe we do that sometimes i want to do all of it i want to do anything and all of it i like i love doing this i have so much fun chatting with you guys and like i'm always so touched whenever you guys invite me to come on so oh
3: well i absolutely
4: love it it's like i literally was telling all my coworkers about today i was gonna be on this really cool podcast (laughs) (laughs) that's so rad oh my
2: gosh yeah yeah
0: Thank you.
4: (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Hi everybody.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Kat.
4: It was so good to catch up with you guys. It was
3: wonderful. Thank you.
4: Soon. Yep. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye bye.
2: One of the topics we've been exploring lately is the idea of collaboration. We examined the love between Claude Calhoun and Marcel Moore. We talked with Taylor and Kate Miller-Wilson about their waterside photos. And most recently, looked at the toxic dependency between Marguerite Mather and Edward Weston.
3: Today, we're entering into the intense and desperate four-year relationship between Lee Miller and Man Ray. How might a self-centered, aristocratic Vogue model of 22 get along with a short, odd, working-class surrealist photographer pushing 40? As we'll see, Lee Miller was not your average fashion icon, and Man Ray wasn't really your typical surrealist. In fact, Lee might have fit that definition far better than Man
2: Elizabeth Lee Miller was born in the spring of 1907 to Theodore and Florence, two incredibly wealthy upstate New Yorkers. Her father had an interest in photography and taught his three kids the ins and outs of the craft, behind the camera and even in the darkroom. Her mother had training as a nurse. They lived on a small farm outside of the small city of Poughkeepsie, New York, which was overseen by a Canadian farmer which left the family more leisure time than most other families in the early 1900s.
3: Before she was even in school, Lee adored the chemistry set her father had bought for her, but she also fell in love with photography. She was becoming as experienced behind the camera as she was in front of it. Her father's countless photo albums are full of pictures of Lee.
2: At the age of seven, her mother fell ill and Lee was sent to live with family friends in Brooklyn. These friends had a son in the Navy who was home on leave. During that brief stay, she was sexually assaulted and contracted gonorrhea. Mass production of penicillin wouldn't happen for another 30 years, so it fell upon her mother to treat the infection with douching with various acids. Lee was probed regularly by doctors, and her mother. Though unbelievably painful as well as toxic, the infection was detected early enough to stop its rapid spread. There would, however, be flare-ups now and then.
3: And while the infection was basically dealt with, the trauma was handled in an incredibly bizarre way. Progressive for their time, Lee's parents took her to see a psychiatrist who focused solely upon what he perceived as Lee's feelings of guilt. The treatment was given for the parents to teach Lee that sex and love were totally disconnected. Sex was a mere physical act and nothing else.
2: Perhaps connected to this so-called treatment, her father began to photograph Lee in the nude. It's not completely uncommon for new parents to photograph their kids in the buff, but this began when she was seven and never really stopped.
3: For most of these sessions, when she was younger, Lee's mother was present, and there is zero indication that anything even remotely sexual happened between Theodore, her father, and Lee. This doesn't mean that the sessions didn't affect her. It doesn't even mean that they didn't damage her. Like many victims of sexual abuse, through her teen years, Lee was promiscuous, writing in her diary, Anything you hear about me is probably true.
2: Through her childhood, Lee was in and out of various schools and was constantly fighting with her mother, who became disillusioned with the family, even becoming a flapper for a while.
3: Upon turning 18, Lee studied stage design in Paris. Feeling perfectly at home in the city, she quickly learned its streets and cafes. Soon she threw off what little remained of her American Puritanism and indulged in what she later called all the various and nasty affairs.
2: Her first excursion to Paris ended January of 1926. Returning home, she was immediately depressed. After a month-long sulk, she enrolled in Vassar and was bored. She longed for Paris, but settled for New York. There, she continued her study of stage design and began modeling. On weekends at home, her father photographed her in the nude, and they developed and printed the photos together in the darkroom. This hobby soon made a turn to include several of Lee's friends in the photographs as well.
3: Lee would make
2: light of this,
3: or really, she didn't make anything at all of it. This was her normal, but this was also where she seemed to disassociate from her body. In the photos, she is comfortable, but nearly absent. The relationship shared between father and daughter was strange and unfathomable by any standards of pretty much any era, What is known, though, is that Theodore was loved and trusted by Lee.
2: Though Lee had done some professional modeling before, she was discovered by publishing royalty Condi Nass, who pulled her out of the way of oncoming traffic one busy afternoon. On the spot, he offered her a job modeling at Vogue, which, at the time, was the final word on art and fashion. By her 20th birthday, she was on the cover. Soon, she was sought after by every photographer in York, including photo secessionist Edward Steichen, who encouraged her to take up photography herself. While
3: she continued to appear in Vogue, one of the photos Steichen took wound up in an ad for Codex sanitary pads. She was, at first, outraged and then delighted at how the campaign shocked her entire family.
2: Having her fill with modeling, she was encouraged by Steichen to go back to Paris and find a photographer named Man Ray.
3: Lee took a job for a fashion designer that required her to travel to Europe and sketch the buckles in Renaissance paintings. Riveting. She grabbed a school friend, Tanya Rahm, a shy 20-year-old from Norway, and made the trip. She illustrated these buckles for a time, but quickly discovered that using a camera, and here it was a small Kodak folder, it was quicker.
2: When the job was finished, Tanya went to Germany and Lee went to Paris searching for Man Ray, not to be one of his models, but to learn photography.
3: Lee arrived at his studio in early summer, but the concierge told her that he'd left for the season. She was distraught and went to a nearby cafe to console herself, but not long after she sat down, she saw him enter.
2: Man Ray was born Emmanuel Rednitsky in South Philly. His family changed their last name to Ray to avoid the growing anti-Jewish sentiment. His parents were very working class, and man developed that strange mix of shame and pride towards his upbringing. He took up painting and photography, but seemed to enjoy the former more. He fell in with the Dadaist and Surrealist, but never fully subscribed to their philosophies.
3: After a bad marriage, he moved to Paris in 1921 and fell in love with Kiki de Montparnasse. She posed in Man Ray's most famous photograph, Le Violin de Grace, depicting a woman with two violin F-holes superimposed on her back. After a few years, Man and Kiki broke up, though he never quite got over her. But now it was 1929, and here was Man Ray standing before Lee Miller in a small corner café in Paris. As she wrote later,
2: He looked like a bull with an extraordinary torso and very dark eyebrows and dark hair. I told him boldly that I was his new student. He said he didn't take students. And anyway, he was leaving Paris for holiday. I said, I know. I'm going with you. And I did.
3: They traveled to Biarritz, spending a month or so on the road meeting with Man Ray's various friends and patrons. Along the way, he photographed her and taught her a few things about the camera. The real learning would come upon the return.
2: Back in Paris, Lee rented a room in a hotel, anticipating that her friend Tanya would soon rejoin her. She spent days in Man Ray's studio and nights with him at the cafe. It was sex and photography and socializing. He quickly fell in love with her, and she liked him very much as well.
3: In the studio, with man behind the camera and a typically naked Lee in front, They often used a Graflex or a half-plate studio camera. They worked with glass plates, which by 1929 were on their way out. She was learning quickly, and Mann gave her the confidence she needed to become the photographer she longed to be. When it came to printing, in Lee's words,
2: The darkroom wasn't as big as a bathroom rug. There was a wood sink lined with acid-proof paint, a big print developing basin, and a tank about where the water could run through and rinse. Man was absolutely meticulous about how photos were fixed in Wash.
3: Once she was experienced in the darkroom, she offered to print for him so that he might have more time to photograph. However, what Man Ray really wanted was more time with Lee. In the studio, Lee was not only a replacement for Kiki in front of the camera, but a replacement for Bernice Abbott and Bill Brandt, both former assistants.
2: She also became his receptionist. She'd welcome the models and be oogled by their men, one of them obviously familiar with the photos of her, was the head of a tablewares company who supposedly modeled a champagne glass after one of her breasts.
3: Man Ray enjoyed showing Lee off to his friends, who saw her as the latest fascination, Kiki with blonde hair. Man didn't do himself any favors in this respect, taking Lee to all the places he used to go with Kiki. This included some of the cafes where Kiki still worked.
2: But to those more attuned, they understood that Lee was nothing like Kiki at all. Man Ray, in many ways, molded Kiki, created her image, and then got tired and moved on. In many ways, Kiki did the same to Man, but Lee was every bit of her own person. She was, from their perspective, self-absorbed and too willing to use her sex appeal to get what she wanted, especially from Man Ray, who they felt surrendered to her
3: the stock market crash of October 1929 sent most of their American friends fleeing back to the States. Many of Mann's patrons could no longer afford to support him, and his clients grew fewer and fewer. Lee began to model for French Vogue, called Frogue to those in the know, and even received photo credits when working for photographer George Huygensen Hewen, which is an amazing name. Huygensen Hewen. Go on.
2: Together with his studio assistant, Horst Bormann, they formed a collaborative team. Huyn, often photographed Horst, and Lee together, but it was very different work than she did with Man Ray. The trio's work was almost candid and free and very commercial, while her work with Man was heavy and surreal.
3: Man was probably jealous of this collaboration. As the relationship evolved, he grew more attached and more intense. She was essential to his work now. Without Lee Miller, there could be no Man Ray.
2: But it wasn't without some bit of reason. When Lee and Man Ray worked together, it was full collaboration. They couldn't truly say who took which photo, regardless of who pressed the button. Often, he was behind the camera, but she was in the darkroom creating the print. As the shutter clicked on, their portraits became more intimate. The passion was still there, but the hold they had on each other was obvious.
3: The photos were also becoming stranger and more severed from reality. Soon Lee's head was twisted upside down. Some had props like a mannequin hand resting on her lips. Man had a fascination with lips and was completing a painting called Observer Time The Lovers that featured a pair of enlarged lips floating in a blue sky. The lips were originally Kiki's, but over time they were grown into the shape of Lee's, looking like two bodies joined together.
2: Man took hundreds of portraits of Lee but there are only three of him by her. He became so obsessed that he even photographed her unknowingly while she slept. He also began to disassemble her photographically, severing legs and an arm, her head. There was an unspoken violence growing in his photographs with her, though he likely saw it as parts of a bodily study.
3: He posed her in contortions on her knees, moving from bodily exploration to erotica. But Lee was there too. This was, after all, a collaboration. And treating it simply as a sadistic attack upon her body robs Lee of her always-present love of shocking those around her. Like with many things in life, there are many different truths wrapped up inside their relationship. These photos are interactions with both man and Lee bringing their hearts into the studio.
2: Things were moving swiftly now. Man's growing intensity showed clearly in their work together, but it was also pushing Lee away. Man knew this all too well, writing to her
3: You're so young and beautiful and free, and I hate myself for trying to cramp that in you which I admire most and find so rare in women.
2: In order to prove that he was fine with her free spirited ways, he gave her the assignments that he didn't want to do himself. She took a job as a photographer at a medical school. As a testament to how she enjoyed shocking others, one day after photographing a mastectomy, she placed the severed breast on a tray, covered it with a napkin, and strolled over to Vogue's headquarters to shoot it.
3: Once in the studio and behind the camera, she arranged the severed breast on a plate with a knife and a fork and some salt and pepper And took the photos. This little stunt got her thrown out of the building, but she got her photos, two of them, in fact. What her point was, she never said, but with all of Man Ray's severing of her body, was this some hyper realistic reply?
2: Vogue soon forgave her, and she began to spend more and more time there, away from Man. She also began walking through Paris, photographing the buildings and streets, and these photos, while pitched at odd angles and bordering the surreal, very few people appear.
3: The time away from Man Ray allowed her to continue working with Man Ray. This culminated in an important, though accidental, collaboration. One day, Lee was in the darkroom developing the film just shot by Man of Susie Solidar, a model who was on her way out of the country. As Lee later told it,
2: Something crawled across my foot in the darkroom, and I let out a yell and turned on the light. I never did find out what it was, a mouse or what. Then I realized the film was totally exposed, there in the developing tanks, ready to be taken out, where a dozen practically fully developed negatives of a nude against a black background. Man Ray grabbed them, put them in the hypo, and looked at them. The unexposed parts of the negative, which had been the black background, had been exposed with this sharp light that had been turned on, and they had developed and came right up to the edge of the white nude body.
3: Man was furious at first. Susie was long gone, and there was no way to reshoot these. But upon second look, the strange outline impressed him. Here was a new process that he could fine-tune and use in a number of ways.
2: They called this process solarization, named not after the sun, but after Susie Solidar, the model whose photos had been solarized. These weren't the first solarized photos ever. Both had likely seen such discarded negatives in the trash, but they were the first to name it and explore it.
3: This new discovery gave him a reprieve from man's intensity and Lee's desire to be Lee. Also, Lee was moving out. Man got her a nearby apartment and they decorated it together, hanging German records on the wall and placing man's handmade lamps here and there.
2: Now on her own, though still very much with man, she continued wandering the streets, taking increasingly strange architectural photos. She played with patterns and voids, unsettling angles, and anything unexpected, but again, very few people. She was, however, much happier now.
3: Lee even tried to befriend Kiki, but she and her friends simply did not care for Lee or what she was apparently doing to man. Lee tried, but just didn't know how to fit in. She was more than used to moving gracefully through high society, but this was not that. Most of the artists in Kiki's circle were very working class. Lee was obviously out of their league.
2: Unable to make inroads in the cafe culture, Lee turned to the wealthy, where she became friends with Tata. Tatiana Ayakoleva, a tall blonde from Russia, also a model. They were fast friends, but few understood how. Both needed to be the center of attention, and either were fine with the other getting the spotlight.
3: In a way, Lee was able to move between two worlds, even though Man Ray, and to an extent Vogue, were her only connections to the avant-garde, now just discovered by the ultra-wealthy as the next fashionable trend.
2: The rich jumped on it sponsoring edgy artists to make themselves feel a part of something aside from naked wealth. It also wrested control of the art from the artists, giving it to the rich. But with no other form of income, most artists could do nothing about it.
3: In June of 1930, Man Ray was invited to photograph a party. The only stipulation was that he had to dress properly and blend in. He had an idea and invited Lee to help him. This would be her first introduction to the highest rungs
2: of the highest society. The party was to be a white costume party. Everything was white. The floor, the walls, the clothes, the people. Everything was very, very white. Man Ray's idea was to use a 35mm projector to throw images across the room onto the revelers. They even brought along some dirty words to project. As Man Ray later wrote...
3: In keeping with the theme of the ball, I was dressed in white as a tennis player, bringing as assistant a pupil who studied photography with me at the time, Lee Miller. She too was dressed as a tennis player in very small shorts and a blouse, especially designed by one of the well-known courtiers. A slim figure with blonde hair and lovely legs, she was continually being taken away to dance, leaving me to concentrate alone on my photography. I was pleased with her success, but annoyed at the same time, not because of the added work, but out of jealousy. I was in love with her. As the night progressed, I saw less and less of her, fumbled with my material and could not keep track of my supply of film holders. I finally ceased taking pictures, went downstairs to the buffet for a drink and withdrew from the party. Lee turned up now and then between dances to tell me what a wonderful time she was having. All the men were so sweet to her.
2: Man's jealousy was only growing. And then there came Jean Cocteau. Jean Cocteau was a poet who was also a filmmaker. One night at a cafe where Mann and Lee were seated, Cocktail was asking around for someone to screen test for a role in his new movie, Blood of a Poet. Lee sprang to her feet and volunteered. Mann was fully against it, but knew not to stand in her way. Cocktail had the backing of some rich people with fancy names, which likely also riled Mann. He had no love for Cocktail before this, and even less now.
3: The shoot was horrible. Lee's character in the first act had no arms, like the Venus de Milo, so hers had to be bound behind her back. The makeup was literally spackled on. The muse in this situation was a statue.
2: Additionally, the mattresses they were using as soundproofing were infested with bedbugs. Everyone got a bite. The Brazilian dancer Enrique Rivero, who played the poet Angel, had twisted his ankle and had to limp from scene to scene. And though Cocteau loved the image of a limping Angel, nobody on set understood what the film was about, and the script was constantly changing.
3: Man Ray accused Cocteau of stealing his idea of pasting fake eyes over the real eyes of the muse, an idea he expressed with Kiki a few years prior. Lee and Man fought constantly through the production— It was essentially war until the final scene was filmed.
2: The summer of 1930 saw things settle down a bit for Lee and Mann. Blood of a poet was close to finished, and life went back to something near normal.
3: It was also around this time that Mann began using props in photos of Lee. He posed her with a metal mesh cast meant to bind a broken arm. She first placed it on her arm, but then he moved it to her head, creating a veil to cover her face— Lee was visibly unamused by him.
2: The intimacy had slowly leaked from their work. Man's need to possess her, his anger at her work with Cocteau, with anyone who wasn't Man Ray, was tearing them apart.
3: Lee's friend Tanya made her return to Paris, and they spent many evenings at the studio undressed and being photographed by Mann, who had recently taken a keen interest in female intimacy.
2: Soon, another visitor arrived, Eric, not you, <laughs> sorry buddy, <laughs> Lee's younger brother. At only 20, he looked up at his older sister and was proud of the life she had forged for herself, especially as a photographer. He also took to man, who was a bit of an inventor on the side. They both marveled at man's newly fashioned tripod that could be raised and lowered by a crank.
3: That autumn was spent out on the town. Lee spent a lot of her free time away from man having affairs with various men. Man knew of some of them, and as per the rules of free love, he was supposed to be okay with it. He was, however, very much not okay with it. Lee, on the other hand, was having the time of her life.
2: Lee was also spending time alone in the studio. Sometimes she photographed Tanya posing her in odd and uncomfortable ways, sometimes blindfolded. In one, it looked... As if her head was severed and encased in a bell jar.
3: But one night, Lee found herself fully alone. She wrapped her neck with a black scarf and sat in front of a dark background, set the shutter, and took a very solemn and plain looking self portrait. She signed it in French Lee Miller par Lee Miller. She was her own woman now.
2: Or at least, she was no longer man's woman. She was, however, still very much her father's. In December, Theodore visited Sweden and asked for Lee to join him. Upon arrival in Stockholm, they had adjoining rooms. Before long, she was nude and he was behind the camera. In opposition to her most recent photos with Man Ray, she looks comfortable, at ease, and relaxed.
3: Soon after, they were both in Paris, where Theodore immediately warmed to Man They both had an engineer's mind and both loved photography. There was more than enough to talk about for days. They even took each other's portraits, fully clothed, of course.
2: During her father's two-week stay, he squeezed in as many photo sessions as he could. He photographed Tanya as well as Lee, and then both of them together. And then Man Ray's new assistant, Natasha. There were various other naked models as well.
3: Man could witness the ease at which Lee posed for her father. Even fully nude and fully exposed, she seemed comfortable, much more comfortable than she was with Man, especially now.
2: Man then photographed Lee with her father. She was fully clothed, but was on his lap, resting her head against his shoulder. If not for the relative size, it could have been a photo of a father and his four-year-old child, but of course it wasn't.
3: With the new year, 1931, theater was gone, and Tanya was married and whisked away to the States. But Lee never felt alone. She had man for certain, but she had many friends and partners as well. Her photography career was expanding, and her client list was growing.
2: In her free time, she decided she wanted to try her hand at still photography on the set of a motion picture. She had fallen in love with the hectic and chaotic atmosphere of the movie set while working on blood of a poet and wanted more
3: she found more in the movie stumble a film about a woman being blackmailed by her husband Lee even got behind the movie camera for some insert shots and in b-roll unfortunately for man this took her to elstree studios in england
2: now separated man wrote her constantly long love letters to which lee replied though not as faithfully she even invited him over for a visit, but he grew suspicious and demanded to know the names of the men who Lee was seeing. He wanted to know everything.
3: It doesn't appear that he ever made the trip, but Lee returned to Paris when she could, and when she did, she often posed for man's increasingly desperate and sexual images. In one, they were commissioned by an electric company to come up with something for an advertisement. The end result is a double exposure of Lee's nude torso from the chin uh, all the way down to the crotch. Her hands are behind her back and her head is cropped out. There are white, almost electric-looking bolts across the image. This photo, titled simply Electricity, was one of their most graphic and violent to date. In later writings, Lee seems amused by the whole thing, especially the electric company's shock of it all.
2: There's no doubt that Lee could see what Man Ray was up to. His anger and jealousy were plainly expressed in their work together. More than anything, though, it seemed like she just didn't care. She was over it and had moved on. She began an affair with Piedis Zizi Zversky. When Man found out, his heartbreak and anger poured forth into a letter that we'd today call a love bomb.
3: I've tried to justify this love by giving you every chance in my power to bring out everything interesting in you. The more you seemed capable, the more my love was justified and the less I regretted any lost effort on my part. I've tried to make you a compliment to myself, but these distractions have made you waver, lose confidence in yourself. And so you wanna go by yourself to reassure yourself, but you are merely getting yourself under somebody else's control.
2: Of course, little of this was true. Mann basically admitted he was controlling, but at least he wasn't as controlling as any other man she saw. When she returned to England, Mann demanded that if she wanted to work in the movies, she had to do it in Paris.
3: And you must arrange to live as my wife, married or not, I cannot see you in any other way.
2: The next time she returned to Paris in August of 1931, she made it a point to see almost nothing of man. She spent time in her own studio photographing actors and probably much more. She had a short affair with Charlie Chaplin during the autumn, traveling with him to San Moritz.
3: She also spent time with Aziz Alois Bey and his wife, Nime, both Egyptian aristocrats. Lee photographed Neme while Aziz fell madly in love with Lee. They began an affair that quickly wrecked the marriage.
2: With the dawn of 1932, Lee found her private life a bit messier than she liked. She and Aziz cooled off some, but Lee and Mann's relationship was tumultuous at best. He suggested they both move to New York and continue their work and collaboration there. She was less than interested.
3: Aziz had returned to Cairo, and Lee missed him. She had, it seems, fallen in love with him as well. Aziz, like man, was around 20 years Lee's senior. But that's where the similarities ended. She saw that he had no desire to control her at all. He encouraged her to create and to
2: work. Soon Aziz filed for divorce. Nimay took it hard, possibly attempting suicide. It wasn't ideal, but he and Lee could now be together. Man was unconsolable. According to friends, he was half-dead with sorrow and jealousy. Man had begun openly carrying a pistol. Nobody was sure if he would kill himself, kill Lee or Aziz, or maybe all three. He wasn't eating, hardly sleeping, and was utterly unconsolable.
3: In spring, following a strange defamation lawsuit brought by Lee against Time magazine, art dealer Julian Levy fell for Lee and they began an affair. Julian was working with Mann extensively and did his best to keep the affair from him.
2: The affair lasted through the summer of 1932. They got along well and had some wonderfully carefree fun. Julian left Paris in September and Lee knew she finally had to decide where her life was going.
3: Aziz and her were, at least according to Lee, on a break, but he would soon be returning to Paris. Mann was, well, man, And by this time, he openly saw Lee as a threat and the art that he was producing showed it pretty well.
2: For the piece he called Object of Destruction, Ban cut out Lee's eyes and pasted it into a pendulum of a metronome. Instructions accompanied it, telling the viewer to cut out
3: the eye from the portrait of one who has been loved but is seen no more. Attach the eye to the pendulum of a metronome and regulate the weight to suit the tempo desired. Keep going to the limit of endurance. With a hammer well aimed, try to destroy the whole at a single blow.
2: In October, Lee made her decision to leave Paris and return to New York without Mann. He was gutted, though it should have been expected. After she left, Mann found a mutual friend, Jacqueline Barsotti, in a local cafe. He slammed his gun down upon her table, saying, I wish I was dead. She
3: took him outside, and they walked together in the rain, passing Lee's empty studio one last time. They wound up at Mann's studio, and here Jacqueline continues the story.
2: He got out a pistol, a rope, and other objects and started to arrange them for the now famous photograph of him in utter despair. In order to set the photograph up, he asked me to pose in his place so that he could focus. Then we switched positions and he sat there with a gun pointed to his head and the rope around his neck. I was terrified because I had no idea if the gun was loaded or if he was actually going to shoot himself anything could have been possible. He was so distraught and I myself was upset. Anyway, I took the picture and looking back on it, I felt it summed up the moment. He was utterly destroyed by her leaving him. He had lots of women, but she was the one he wanted the most. That might have had something to do with the fact that he couldn't have her.
3: Both Man Ray and Lee Miller would lead long lives with amazing careers. Man Ray would eventually marry the love of his life, a dancer who studied under Martha Graham. They'd move to Los Angeles and then back to Paris after the war. He continued working until his death.
2: Lee's work would retain a surrealist bent throughout her life. She eventually married and then divorced Disease During World War II, she began a new career as a photojournalist for Vogue and then Life magazine. Her work during the war was visceral and often surreal. She ended the war by taking photos of Nazis who committed suicide and bathing in dead Adolf Hitler's bathtub. But that is a story for another time.
3: Man Ray and Lee Miller saw each other a few times throughout their lives. Eventually, they became close friends, setting aside everything but the love they ultimately had for each other. When they met in 1974, those around them were amazed at how close they were.
2: In a 1975 interview, when asked about her work with Mann, she spoke hardly a word about the photography. She gushed on about their friendship and how, despite his stubbornness and her bullying, they fell into each other's arms every time they met.
3: In October of 1975, they saw each other for the last time. Normally, he was in too much pain to see people, but for Lee, all his pain disappeared. She sat beside him on the bed, and they talked about old times and old friends. The distance of 40 years and the hanging obviousness of death laid rest to everything but their closeness.
2: Less than a month later, Man Ray was dead. Lee withdrew for a time. The last of her old friends were gone.
3: She died in July of 1977. Her life still celebrated, but not nearly as much as she lived it.
2: All Through a Lens is made possible by our generous and amazing Patreon subscribers. Through their small monthly donations, we are able to afford to keep this podcast running. Patreon helps us cover expenses for hosting, for audio equipment. It helps us buy books for research and zines to review. And to our Patreon subscribers,
3: we thank you. And we really couldn't, wouldn't, and shouldn't make this podcast without you. In the past, six weeks or so that we've been notoriously absent we have three new patron subscribers we are looking at dan l brian c and joshua w yay
1: Yay. thank Thank you you to
3: everybody there thank you um we hope that you're enjoying your perks there's a ton of bonus material that we've got now we've been doing patreon for just two years now isn't it
2: no i think it is i think we started at the new year I don't know. I can't remember. I think
3: it's two years. So we have a lot of bonus material, a lot of extended interviews. We've got random posts and photos. A lot of, one of the things I've been doing with Dev Party is I've been posting my whole role for patron subscribers and talking about each photo, kind of going through it. It's a way that uh, I can talk too much about my own work. And we've got a lot of extra nonsense as well.
2: We've got three different levels of support with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So 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 head over to patreon.com slash Lens for more. More
3: info. Oh Vanya, I guess I guess we are here at the end of another episode. Uh, it feels yeah. very much like a regular episode and not like a new episode. But
2: it doesn't. It's because it this piece was quite quite long, but it was so much fun to read, honestly. Yeah. Kind of one of I, my favorites. Fun. Not so much Victorian, which is nice. There wasn't too many words, but oh God, the, it's always the European, like the French, and ugh, you didn't get the any words. French words. So, so
3: what are you up to this coming week? You've got some Santa place. Cruz.
2: Yeah. I'm going to Santa Cruz, or I went to Santa Cruz. By the time you listen to this, I shall be either driving back and or hibernating because it's Tuesday and I need to hibernate on Tuesdays. It's the schedule. I have to I have to do it. We record on you? Tuesdays. I know. I like to take a nap before we record. You like can take a nap every day, though. But even an extra nap. Oh, an extra
3: nap. <laughs> an extra helping yeah. of naps.
2: Okay, fine. Yes, Works great. Exactly.
3: So when we come back next week, it'll just be you and me, Vanya. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, joy. Can, can we be trusted? We'll be talking about what improving our photography means to us. Uh, I will have a review of the movie Godland, fingers crossed. Vanya will tell you all about her filming in Santa Cruz. And we may even bring back up Lee and Man uh, just for for fun, see what happens. And of course, we'll have the leftovers from the answering machine. Somehow or another, we'll get through all of those. So I hope you all are ready for that. It'll be a new episode.
2: And don't forget that we will be... Answering questions on Dev Party now. So if you would like to submit a question or comment,
3: the email address is allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com. Nice. <laughs> Vanya, is there anything else we have to tell these folks?
2: Thanks for listening to All Through Lens. And a big
3: thank you to Kat Swansea for talking to us. You can follow her work at, at Kat Swansea Photo on Instagram.
2: We're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com and we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes and photographs on allthroughalens.com
3: Vanya is at surfmartian on Instagram.
2: And Aaron is at conspiracy.of.cartographers and speaking of Instagram
3: make sure to hashtag your stuff hashtag all through lens podcast to be featured
2: find us on Spotify or any other app that you use to listen to podcasts subscribe
3: to us and leave a review thank you all so much for listening we're clearly knocking some rust off we love you uh, Vanya rude do you want to watch
2: fuck yeah I do let's go yee I feel like, uh, what is that guy? Yosemite Sam. <laughs>